So glad to be God's people together. Amen? Amen. Hey, would you join me in the book of Matthew? Matthew chapter 4, first book there in the New Testament, as we begin a new series for the season of Lent. Ash Wednesday was this past Wednesday, and that's the day that kicks off this season. How many of you know the origins of that word Lent? We've said it a lot the last couple weeks, but I always have to re-look it up. But Lent comes from the Old English, which means spring or springtime, because Easter is always in the spring, and Lent is the season in the spring that precedes Easter. But Lent, as we discussed last week, is the season of giving, praying, and fasting to do so in such a way that Jesus taught us, like we looked last week in Matthew 6. But it's not just about giving, praying, and fasting. It's to give, pray, and fast in order to refocus and prepare for Easter, the resurrection. It's 46 days in total. So if you opened up your calendar app and counted from this past Wednesday to Easter, you'll count 46 days. But here's the deal. We don't count Sundays. Sundays are the Lord's days, feast days. So when you take out those six Sundays, you're left with 40. 40 days of Lent. Giving, praying, fasting, preparation. And as Trevor Hudson notes in a book that we looked at a few years back during the season of Lent, we read together as a church. Trevor Hudson says this. The number 40 was not chosen randomly. 40 is a number associated with times of intense spiritual, oh, there's that word again, preparation, and significant transition in the Bible. Think of the 40 years Moses spent in the desert before God called him to the task of liberating the Israelites and building a new nation. Think of the 40 days Jesus spent in the desert wrestling with temptation before he embarked on his public ministry. If you're with me in Matthew chapter 4, that's the setting, that's the story that we're going to be looking at tonight that will serve as a launch pad for our series in the season of Lent. But before we go much further, I want to remind you, because Lent is about preparation, Lent is also about repentance. And repentance is about reorientation. That word repentance literally means a change of mind that leads to a change in action. So when I say it's about reorientation, that means that we might have been drifting farther away. And so we give, pray, and fast in order to reorient and to turn our face and our feet back toward Jesus and his way. Temptation, then, is the opposite. Temptation is about disorientation. Temptation is the whispers that want to turn your face and your feet away from God, who is the source of life and love. And Lent is the season where we do battle. And we try to hear the voice of the Father call us back and to resist the voice of darkness 
that is calling us away. Jesus is able to show us how we can decrease our stuff, self, status, even sin that causes us to disorient and miss the mark. He shows us how to decrease so that we can increase, reorient our communion with God. This story is the passage assigned in many churches across the world to be read the first weekend of Lent to remind us as we give, pray, fast, prepare that Jesus experienced the same kind of struggle, that Jesus modeled a way that you can reorient, you can increase your communion with God even when you're up against dryness, desolation, and disorientation. That's why we're going to be looking at this story, and we're going to be referencing it throughout our series, Decrease, Increase, to take off the stuff that so easily entangles and causes us to drift away so that we might increase our communion with God. You with me on all that? We're going to be talking about it more and more each week. That's enough for now. Let's dive into Jesus's struggle with temptation in this famous scene in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It's going to be here on the screen for you. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, by the way, pause real quick, the devil is about to quote a psalm, just so we're all clear on this. And actually, while we're paused, I tried to find this image again, but years ago I saw a plaque for sale online that was one of those cutesy Christian plaques that you might find at the Christian bookstore, and it had Matthew 4, 5, and it said these words, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. This plaque had Matthew 4, 5, all bedazzled and beautiful, so that you too might have this lovely quote of Satan quoting the Bible. Go figure. If it's a Christian and American, we'll find a way to sell it to you. I just thought, this is why context is important. I'll let you deal with that. We don't have time to talk about all that. Verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, third time, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. I'd like to say a prayer together that's also from the Book of Common Prayer, assigned for the first week of Lent. Can we read these words on the screen aloud together? Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. We're going to spend the next few moments looking at three things. The first is the source of temptation, which is disorientation, if you'll recall. Then the second thing is the setting of temptation. And then the third is the substance of temptation. The source, the setting, the substance. I'm still a Baptist preacher at heart, I suppose. They're all S's. That's where we're headed in Matthew chapter 4. First, the source of temptation I think if I gave you a pop quiz, you'd probably pass tonight. Who do you think in this story is the source of temptation? The devil, Satan, Lucifer, fill in the blank. There's many names, but the names he's most often associated with, the devil, which is the Greek, is a word that is slanderer. The Satan is a Hebrew term that means basically the same thing. The accuser. We understand in glimpses throughout the story of Scripture that Satan, the accuser, was an angel, a spiritual being. And that word angel is messenger. So this is a messenger, a spiritual being that went rogue and has somehow rebelled against God and his purposes and is at work in the world to dissuade people in places away from the will and way of God. In the New Testament, Paul often talks about the powers. There are these shadowy forces at work in the world that are deluding and disorienting people away from the purposes of God. So when we get back to the source of temptation, we understand that there are forces at work in the world that are opposed to God. And this is not a stretch to believe it. You don't have to just go look at The Exorcist or all of these kind of demonic movies and just say, oh, it's exactly like that. Just look at what's happening in our world. There are forces at work whispering in the ears from everyone to politicians to the person like you and me. There are forces that are trying to disorient us and lead us away from God and his purposes. So in Matthew 4, don't imagine some of the Renaissance paintings of a guy with horns and red skin or a widow's peak. Try to imagine instead what we know intuitively and what we know globally that there are shadowy whispers in our own thoughts, and in the oppression and division and hatred we see around us that are luring people out of the purposes of God and into chaos and disorientation. So I think that what's happening with Jesus is Satan is coming to him not as this bold and red, fiery type of person, 
I don't know if he was even physically manifested in front of Jesus. In fact, I believe, I have a hunch, I think, maybe, Jesus recognized these whispers from the source of the Satan, the accuser, not from a red-horned creature, but disguised in the way he comes to us, disguised as our own thoughts, disguised as whispers and impulses to disorient and pull us away. Could it be that the accuser came and whispered into the ear of the Savior, accusing and opposing God in his way? It happens this way in the world. It happens with us, disguised as our own thoughts and whispers of disorientation. The setting of temptation is important too because this is when Jesus, who is the very Son of God, who is also very human, finds himself in a place of vulnerability. And isn't it true that often these whispers start to get louder when we're hungry and hangry? when we're lonely and isolated, or when we're in a place of spiritual dryness. The setting literally for Jesus mirrors that of the kinds of wilderness that we might find ourselves in. Jesus was in an actual desert, an actual wilderness, but haven't you been in places when it's hard and you're isolated and you're dry? And this comes immediately after the opposite. When Jesus was baptized literally in water, He heard the voice of the Father call him Son. And all that sounded wonderful and nice when he was baptized and he was surrounded by John and other friends and people. But then he goes out at the beginning of his ministry to a dry, lonely, desperate place. And all of a sudden the crowds are gone. The church experience is over. He's dried off from the baptism. He's a long way from the celebration and the singing. And aren't we, like Jesus, sometimes in places where the experience and feeling of God's nearness is actually a long, distant way off? Jesus, beginning his ministry, there to focus and prepare, was still subject to suffering, struggle, and Satan. You might want to write down Hebrews 4:15. The writer of Hebrews says, "By the way, just in case you think that Jesus is like so high and mighty and unapproachable and like too imperfect, understand that Jesus experienced every temptation just like us, yet he was without sin. Jesus knew what it was like to feel spiritually dry, Jesus knew what it was like to be physically dry, fasting, hungering, hurting, suffering. Jesus knew what it's like to be lonely. Jesus knew what it's like to be a long way from home. But I think it's important to also understand this, that just because Jesus and you wind up in a desert, it doesn't always mean you took a wrong turn. I think this is supremely important. I wish this wasn't so, but it is. 
just because you and Jesus wind up in the desert feeling isolated, dry, and alone, it doesn't mean you took a wrong turn. Do you remember who led Jesus into the wilderness place? The what? The Spirit. God, through the Holy Spirit, sends the one he calls beloved and son into a place where he's going to experience the disorientation of evil and pain and suffering. You, who are called a beloved child, who's called and led of God, will experience evil and struggle and pain and suffering. Any Christianity that tries to explain this away has not read Matthew 4. It doesn't mean you took a wrong turn. It means that you're human. It means that Jesus was human. It means that there's something formative about the wilderness that you may not love, but you need to understand it has a place in our journey and our life. That in Psalm 23, the most famous psalm, that the shepherd doesn't take the shortcut The shepherd takes you through the valley of the shadow of death. Not that you avoid it, but you are promised that he'll be with you in it. Because the substance of temptation, like we see here the tempter make for Jesus, the substance most often looks like a shortcut. The substance is to say, this suffering and dryness is wrong you're malformed, you've done something incorrectly. And by the way, sometimes you get so disoriented, you sin, and you really do have to experience the consequences that bad choices make. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the very human experience of life with God where sometimes you're gonna wind up for 40 days or 40 years feeling dry and isolated and lonely. I'm saying that God is still present with you there. But the substance of temptation is when you start to say, man, forget this, I want the shortcut. God I don't want whatever you have for me. I don't want what you're teaching me. I don't want your presence. I don't want to learn through this. I want the shortcut. So when Jesus is dry, lonely, desperate, human, struggling, the Satan comes to him in a moment of weakness and says, this is my opportunity to give him the shortcut. Because maybe if Jesus forgets the valley of the shadow of death now, he won't take up his cross and go through it then. But when Jesus comes out of this 40 days and starts to call other disciples, he's going to say, no, 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 the desert isn't an add-on. The cross and death must precede life and resurrection. Jesus can't look his people and disciples in the face and say that if he doesn't live this. Talking with our friend in Russia yesterday for an hour, wanting to leave the country says, this is what I want to do. I want to go and I hate this, but how can I leave and expect to come back in five years, five months and say, but Jesus is calling you to sacrificial love. I can't understand that kind of resolve, but I think my friend in Russia learned it from Jesus 
who goes through these 40 days so that he might look us in the face and say, trust me, you can pick up the cross. You can do this. Do not be afraid. There's life and resurrection on the other side. The shortcut sounds good, though. And that's why we need to understand the substance of the temptation. It effectively looks like this. The Satan comes to him and says, feed yourself. Feed yourself, turn these breads into stone, or turn these stones into bread. Feed yourself. God did it then. You can do it now. And Jesus, by the way, is going to turn some loaves and fish into a lot more loaves and fish. So there's this assumption that Jesus, the Son of God, can feed himself, and he's going to be able to feed the world. This is the shortcut that says, go ahead, satisfy your need now, and when people get word of this, they're going to want more. That's what happened when Jesus fed the 5,000. In John chapter 6, they say, hey, dude, give us this bread always. So the temptation, the shortcut, the substance is satisfy your need, and then when word gets out, Jesus I'll tell you what your ministry and vocation is about. You can turn this whole thing into a social system that the world has never known. You can feed the world, but the problem is you're going to forget God in the process. We know that this is the substance of temptation because what Jesus tells him is, Hey, dude, man does not live on bread alone. In effect, what is it if you feed your belly but we neglect the ultimate source because if everyone's hunger is satisfied, if I'm the vending machine that gives you exactly what you want, are you ever going to long for and look for God? What's remarkable is what Jesus quotes is Deuteronomy uh, 8, I believe. Deuteronomy 8.3. And God says this to Israel in the wilderness after he feeds them. So it's not this or that, he's saying don't just settle for the bread when you can have bread and the bread giver. This is the temptation. This is the shortcut. Jesus, forget this cross. Forget all this stuff. Satisfy your needs. Satisfy the masses. And then you won't ever need God. As the neighborhood church, we need to be very careful because we meet literal, tangible, physical needs. This is kind of what it's about. We need to understand that we're a Matthew 25 people. When I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. These kinds of things, not just collectively, this is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you see brokenness, you say, okay, God, is there a way that I can step in and bring some of this restoration? But the problem is this. We don't just feed and clothe, we also do so in Jesus' name. We don't just demonstrate the kingdom of God, we're also declaring the kingdom of God. We hate that this brokenness and this hunger exists today, but we point them forward to the day when there will be no more tears and no more hunger, and we point them to that kingdom now, and we look ahead to that kingdom when it comes in fullness. The substance also goes like this. Persuade the world, but neglect faith. Do you remember that second temptation? It was basically, dude, if you jumped off of the temple, I'm pretty sure that God, who would send his angels like the psalmist said, is going to bail you out. 
The shortcut here is twist God's arm, do something spectacular. But here's the thing. If Jesus only did magic tricks at people's beck and call, how many times in the Gospels did they say, okay, uh, show us a sign? Jesus says, I ain't going to show you a sign. Why? Because Jesus is not coercing people to win followers and fans on social media. He's looking for people that are willing to put their whole weight and trust in him so that they would follow him to the cross. That doesn't look like a magic trick. That looks like God forsakenness. But Jesus knows there's life on the other side. But he's inviting you to a mystery of faith. So Jesus' temptation is the shortcut of, look, just persuade the world. Show them you're not fully human. Show them you're only divine. But then that takes faith completely out of the equation. Who's going to doubt something that crazy? When he's literally elevated above the temple and all the priests, you're telling me that they're not going to say, oh yeah, that's God's guy for sure. Of course they would. If a bunch of angels come up like a trampoline under Barnum and Bailey's circus and rescue him, how are the Pharisees going to deal with that? I don't think they're going to be challenging Jesus. But they're also not going to have an authentic faith. Finally, the substance. The third temptation, and this is the most insidious of all. Your memory takes him to a mountain. These whispering thoughts saying, Jesus, take the shortcut. You see all these oppressed people, and I wonder if Jesus' heart was broken because he knows what oppression looks like, and he knows that if he could just snap his fingers, it could all be fixed. But the way of the cross and the way of faith and the way that God has orchestrated this is this incremental kingdom that is coming with every small action, with every trust, with every prayer. This is the way it works. And you get there not by bowing to Satan and taking a shortcut, but by the hard road of the cross because there's resurrection on the other side. Gain the world, he says, because Satan's influence and power is rampant in this world. In 1 John, he says that this world is in the lap of Satan. But John also says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And Jesus would not bow to the accuser and the enemy. He would follow God's way, however incremental and long-suffering it would be. Feed the world, but forget God. Persuade the world, but neglect faith. Gain the world, but lose your soul. Don't be fully human. Don't do it God's way. Forget who you are. And here's how I want to land this idea. There is the temptation to commit a sin. There is temptation to go and do this thing that your mom and dad and pastor and Sunday school teacher told you not to do, right? We know the Ten Commandments. We know the Sermon on the Mount. We know that there is a temptation to literally go and do this, right? You shouldn't go out and murder. There is these temptations. You shouldn't go out and let your rage and your anger overflow. You shouldn't commit adultery. Yes and amen, we get all this. Okay, yes, uh-huh. There is also a more insidious and subtle long-term temptation. And this is why I like this language of disorientation and reorientation. The problem is, and I think this is at the nugget of what Satan is doing with Jesus here. The more subtle temptation is he wants Jesus to forget who he is. If you are the son of God then shouldn't it do this? Shouldn't it look like this? Shouldn't it look like that? 
the temptation he's giving to you is, are you sure you're following Jesus? You're in this wilderness. Are you sure that you're really his? You're not that loving. Are you sure you're his? Because you just did that thing again and you repented and said you wouldn't. Are you sure you're a son and a daughter? Because you suck at Lent. I can say that because the kids are gone now. The subtle, disorienting temptation where he works the long game is you forget who you were called to be and what you were called to do. And this is why doing this with others is so vital. Because we come back and we say, oh, I kind of blew it. But you get to hear good news. You're forgiven when you repent and reorient. God wipes the slate clean. He doesn't point his finger down at you. He lifts you up and says, let's go. Today's a new day. I think this is how we try to do it with parenting. Amy told me this as soon, 10 years ago this week, we had our first kid. And she said, look, here's something you got to understand. We're never going to call her a bad kid. I said, okay, okay. And she goes, but sometimes she's going to make bad choices. That's a difference. Who she is, is beloved, ours, good. We never call her bad kid. But Lord, hallelujah, in 10 years, has she done some bad choices? <laughs> but we try to parent in such a way where we say, okay, this behavior, this is not, this is not you. Especially as she's getting older. We say, whoa, whoa, where is this coming from? This is not who you are. I think that subtle temptation is that you drift further and further out of who you were called to be. This is why Satan gets him right at the beginning. Let's knock him off the way. You know what sin means? It literally means to miss the mark. So when you do that action, ah, you miss the target. This is not God's ideal to cheat on your spouse. This is not God's ideal to rage out and be violent toward this other person. You missed the mark. But here's the other thing. You can miss the mark on who God has created you to be as a beloved son, as a beloved daughter. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness and he hears the tempter's voice trying to knock him off his game, not just in an action, but also in an entire vocation, Jesus goes into the wilderness with his father's voice echoing in his heart. The name beloved reverberated against the voice of the tempter. Every time the tempter says, if you really are the son of God, I gotta believe that Jesus says, I am the son of God who he loves with whom he is well pleased and he hadn't healed a lick of people yet. He hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't gone to the wedding of Cana yet. He hadn't done any miracles, any magic tricks. He doesn't have any followers. He has his father's voice ringing in his ears and says, you are this kind of kid. You're beloved. I am well pleased. And after 30 years of quiet decrease in Nowhereville, Nazareth, Jesus emerges having not done one thing and he has the Father's heart. 
He is a good kid, and he will never make any bad choices. And right here at this moment, Jesus has this dead set locked in his heart that says, this is who I am. And even if the way looks like it's through the wilderness and through the valley and through the cross, I can trust my father because he said, I'm beloved. And it reverberates against the voice of the tempter, trying to give him a shortcut, trying to say you're no one, you're nowhere. And this is the message for us today. Beloved is the echo you should never unhear. You cannot outbelieve your belovedness. You can only forget to live it. Years and years ago, a young man approached me. This was before I came to this church, before we were the neighborhood church. And he said, dude, I am really struggling with pornography. And he's been holding on tight and white knuckling and trying just day by day, sobriety, these kinds of tactics. And there's value and there's goodness in that. He says, but I need help. I'm struggling to lick this habit. I'm disoriented. It's become this habit that is detracting me from God, from my partner, and from myself. I'm living in shame. I need help. He says, give me some Bible verses. And so I text him John 15, 1 to 11. Does anybody know what John 15 is? John 15 is when Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me as I abide in you. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And then like five minutes of silence, we were doing this part over text. And he goes, hey, dude, I think you sent the wrong verse. Because Myself, as a young man, struggling with lust and all these, I did have a laundry list of Proverbs and other things and the Sermon on the Mount about resisting temptation, resisting lust, all the the stuff that you would expect. And he says, dude, I think you sent me the wrong verse. I said, no, dude, I've just lived a little bit and struggled enough to know that John 15 has been my bread and butter because I've understood that sometimes... The best way to avoid temptation and disorientation is to make sure you are so keenly oriented to God. Like the old hymn goes, that the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I've learned that you can only white knuckle and resist temptation for so long in your own strength. But you can resist temptation and flee the devil when you know that you are beloved, when you know that you can abide in him, when you know that you can sit and try to hear the voice of the one that says, why are you acting like that? This isn't you. Romans 6 that we look at when we baptize people. Dude, why should you go on sinning so that grace can just roll up and say, here's some more grace for you. He says, no, dude, don't you know that you were severed from that life? You were baptized into Jesus and raised to newness in life. Why should you go on slumming it up doing this? And that doesn't mean that it's going to be always up and to the right. You're going to face challenges. You're going to be disoriented. You're going to be in the wilderness. But I found that John 15 helps with just about any kind of temptation if I'm abiding in him. That voice doesn't resonate as strongly as our belovedness. Jesus went into the wilderness with his father's voice echoing in his heart. That's the echo you should never unhear. 
when the tempter says, use your power to eat, it's like he's saying to us, you should just satisfy every whim and desire you have. But Jesus was steeped in God's word, not just beloved. Like I said earlier, he quoted Deuteronomy 8. That helps you. That's part of this abiding. When the tempter says, use your privilege to twist God's arm, to be seen so that people will know you're awesome. People will will stroke that ego and coerce them. No, no, no. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. He's steeped in God's word. When the tempter says, use your politics to elevate yourself and oppress and enslave and coerce others. When you're tempted to betray God's way to take the shortcut, he was steeped in God's word, Deuteronomy 6, 13. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6. Guess what? All passages spoken in the Israel wilderness experience. And when they failed to be a light to the world, Jesus doesn't. But when he's in the wilderness, he's thinking about his brothers in Israel, his sisters in Israel. And he says, they were in that wilderness. I am too. But he was so steeped and stoked in God's word, in God's story, in God's vision of beloved that he was able to stand firm. I'll close with this brief story and an invitation. A time in my life of dryness, a time in my life of discerning vocation when I was wondering, like, what's the next steps? Am I a preacher? Am I a pastor? Am I capable of doing any of this? I literally went to a wilderness place, literally went to a place of solitude, and I was so mad at Jesus, it wasn't even funny. I said, I feel like you're my boss, and you're really a terrible boss. I really don't enjoy this. I'm young. I can't believe I just got this seminary degree. What a waste. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. It was in these moments that I opened up the Bible and I saw Isaiah 43, 4. And I saw this word spoken to a rebellious, angry people. And he says, because I love you. Because you're precious and honored in my sight. I'll give everything to have you. And this is the voice of God speaking to a rebellious people in the wilderness that had failed time and time and time and time again. He says, but you're mine and I love you. I had never seen my whole seminary thing was like, we teach all 66 books of the Bible. Dude, I don't think I read Isaiah 43 because I'd never seen God say to people like me, I love you. I had preached it, sang about it, and I just marinated in it. And my anger started to dissipate. And I said, is this for real? And then I looked at Matthew chapter 3. The baptism. And the voice of the one that said, this right here is my beloved son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. And then all of a sudden my seminary mind said, well, uh, in context, he's talking about Jesus, who is the son of God, the Messiah, which is actually Hebrew for the anointed king. So, you know, he's, he, he's actually just talking to Jesus here. And it's almost like I had this voice. I don't know if the Holy Spirit talks like this, but if he, if it, he did, he would say like, shut up. Well, you see, what's going on in Jesus' life here is that, you know, why why is John Baptist? It was to fulfill all righteousness. Just stop. 
And it was in this long stretch that I only started after hearing this word, I love you, hearing this voice, I said, can that be for me too? And then my seminary brain started to kick in a little bit more. I said, aren't you in Christ? Aren't you following him? Aren't you trying to abide in him? Didn't he purchase you? Aren't you baptized into his death? Aren't you raised into newness of life? Dude, of course it's for you. And it's also for you, daughter. You cannot outbelieve your belovedness. And this is the trouble. Some things can't be thought into. Some things have to be experienced in the loving presence of God before they really take root and cause you to do something crazy, like tattoo half of your arm with the baptism of Jesus. Some things have to be experienced. And God was very gracious at a pivotal wilderness moment in my life where I heard the voice of the one that called me beloved. Then I entered into a crazy season of the time before what would become the neighborhood church. And I began to try to make it a practice to go and sit and be still. And every time I would go to the Catholic churches around town to just sit and be still in the middle of my day, you know what I would hear? You're my beloved son whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. And you know what I would journal and say? Got it. Thanks. How do we do this though? You're my beloved son. Okay, cool. How do I preach? You're my beloved son. How do I do this church thing? Am I supposed to? You're my beloved son whom I love. And I'm saying this kind of like, you know, in a silly way, but literally for six months, I didn't have any other word or sense or nudge except this. Because I needed to get it marinated and saturated because I am so slow of hearing. And I just hope that whatever wilderness you step into, whatever disorientation that you've lived, understand that what happened for me may not happen for you because what happened for me in that story I hinted at hasn't happened like that again in a decade. But there is something to sitting and reorienting and turning my face and feet, whether Lent or last month, that helps me through a season where I'm tempted to forget who I was called to be and what I was called to do. May you know that you know that you know that you are beloved, that you are in Christ, the beloved Son, and that God loves you, that God is for you, and that God will lead you through whatever wilderness there may be. Amen and amen. Tonight's benediction was written by Joanna Harader. Whatever wilderness the Spirit has brought you to, walk in boldness as a beloved child of God. Walk in peace under the shelter of the Most High. Walk in faith knowing Christ walks with you. Amen. Go in peace.